Hello again, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Lesbianas podcast. Today, I have a very special guest. She's an author. She helps with a publishing company. Uh, she's an all-around traveler. She's been all over the place. Oh, she's done so many things, and I'll just let her introduce herself. All the things. I've done all the things. Not really. Hi, folks. My name is Andy Marquette. I am an author, editor, podcaster, publisher, whatever the heller, and I am really pleased to be here with Lesbianist today, and we're going to talk about all kinds of groovy stuff. I'm pretty sure you've got all kinds of groovy stuff lined up to talk about, am I right? If all the groovy things you mean were talking about you a lot, then yes, we are talking about all the groovy things. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Okay, well... Let's let's do this. Let's get this road on the show, as you will, or show on the road, or whichever. <laughs> it can be all the ways. Well, first off, let's talk about yourself. Tell tell everyone about your amazing achievements and how you're just such an awesome person. <laughs> oh my God, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know about that. I just stay really busy. Um, I I I guess I'll preface this by saying that I have a background in editing. I spent a God, I probably have about 25 years of editing experience. Yes, friends, that means I am an old. But that's okay. If you think young, then you're okay. You're good for for a while. That'll give you an extra couple decades. I started out in editing. I have also been a writer pretty much off and on most of my life. I did not start doing fiction seriously until about 2006, although... I'll preface that because I did write two novels in high school, atrociously, horribly bad, but you know, Hey, I wrote them. And then I wrote a lot of fantasy and science fiction stories throughout college and, um, graduate school. And I ended up in editing. I worked in a publishing house and I sort of got stuck doing that for a while, which I loved quite a bit. And that has always been of deep interest to me. And in March, was it March? I think it was, no, it was May. I and five of my best friends launched a um, publishing house. We are Dirt Road Books. You can find us at dirtroadbooks.com. And right now, we have a whole bunch of cool-ass Halloween stories for free available on the website. So if you are feeling the Halloween love, go read some. I know. I, like, downloaded, like, four of them. And my wife's like, you're never going to read those. And I'm like, you just watch me. (laughs) But they're they're not that long, actually. So... You know, they're short stories. So, you know, it'll be fun. They're they're a lot of fun. My favorite is um RG Emanuel's actually her take on Lizzie Borden. <laughs> I really like that one. I downloaded that one too, and I'm excited to hear that you liked it. That's gonna put it on the top of my list. Oh, I'm biased. I like everything we do, but you know. <laughs> yeah. I'll own it. I'm biased. And that's super exciting to hear that you guys are starting your own publishing house and like some people I've I've heard around the block someone say that there's too many lesbian publishing houses these days, and I just don't believe that's true, because I can literally sit here all day and count all of the heteronormative kind of publishing houses that is just nothing but straight romances, like very cut and dry, just man meets woman, and then yada yada, on and on and on and on and on for days, for days. So that, I don't think there can ever be too much lesbian content out there at all. Never, but that, if you think about it, switch that around. What if somebody said to you, you know, there's just too many heterosexual p- publishing houses in the world. People would look at you like you had just grown another head. 
And I mean, <laughs> what the hell? Too many lesbian publishing houses? Are you kidding me? When I was coming of age, we had one people. And prior to that, we had zero people. <laughs> I mean, and this is my lifetime, friends. No, there can never be enough lesbian publishing houses. The more, the merrier. I'm super excited. And and that's just one of the beautiful things is like when I was in high school, that doesn't sound so very long ago compared to what some people say when they're like, oh, well, back in my day. Anyway, in high school, I literally burnt out the Internet looking for lesbian material. Like I, I had sat there during almost just a single summer vacation and went through almost everything I could find without looking at something that was just the same thing played by a different tune. So mm-hmm. I, I'm ecstatic. Like it's, it's, I'm super ecstatic. Like it's never, it hasn't even been two decades and already there's just so much more out there that it would take me almost a year to absorb all that was out there. No, it would take you longer than that. We're talking thousands and thousands of fanfic too. Oh my so. God. We're, I wasn't even touching fan fiction, but yes, it's, it's amazing. So yeah, no, there's never enough lesbian publishing. Never. Never enough. Never enough. I, there, we put that argument to bed. <laughs> Speaking of lesbian content um, and queer content, um, Tello, T-E-L-L-O, TelloFilms.com. For those of you who are not familiar, this is a, they stream web series. It's web content and it's uh, various series. You know, there's romance, there's romantic comedy, there's paranormal, there's whatever the hell you want, basically. And um, Christian Baker, who runs it, is absolutely fabulous, and they do a lot of development of projects. So if you're a young filmmaker and you are interested in possibly going into that line of work, Telefilms, I think, would be a really great venue to get started and to get some really good feedback and start developing your own film and projects. Um, it's a great service. The premium service is actually not that expensive. It's like something like $50 a year. And I've been really getting into watching a lot of web content lately. Mm-hmm. And there are some super fun, uh, super fun uh, series on there. And some uh, there's a mystery series, uh, Nikki and Nora. There's uh, a paranormal series. Um, you, I think it's Riley Para. I'm super excited Riley to start Para, watching yes, that one. Yes, that one. And the first season, uh, I think is done. They've got that one done. And I, I don't know, I'm pretty sure they're probably working on the second. And super then it's, it's a blast, you guys. So if you're looking for content for lesbian content, that's not fanfic or books or whatever, and you want to watch something, do that. A lot of the episodes aren't very long. So it's literally something you could probably watch during your commute to work. I mean, if you're on the train, of course, not if you're driving. Yeah, right. <laughs> don't try and watch, and you know, handy tip. But, um, you know, it's, it's some of the, the episodes are set up sort of like Carmilla and, you know, you'll get like an average of three to seven minute episodes. So you can sneak a couple at work. Not that I am suggesting that you do that, but if you did, I wouldn't tell. And you can <laughs> do whatever you need to do within like, you can get like three episodes in, in like 15 minutes. So, you know, I love that. I could have a separate podcast about Carmilla altogether. That like opened a whole new door for me. Like I was searching (laughs) for lesbian content so hard. I was like, I think I will read this book, Carmilla, like the actual published novel that came out forever ago, which I wouldn't suggest it for a lot of people because they don't, they don't paint lesbians in a very good light. But at the same time, I was so willing to go there just to see some kind of lesbian interaction at all. And then I ran across 
Carmilla through like wiki pages because I was trying to figure out if I could get like a free copy of the book without actually buying it. I'm a terrible person. But a I... free copy of what? Le Fanu's? Yes. Carmilla? Yes. It's public domain. Yeah, it's on uh, Project Gutenberg. Oh, see, there you because, go. Because uh, um, Le friends, was actually an Irish author and he wrote the novella Carmilla. Um, it was probably 30 years before Bram Stoker dropped Dracula. So Bram Stoker actually borrowed from Le Fanu, who was a gothic horror novelist known for his, his mood writing. His, uh, he would build up this incredible like tension throughout the story. And Carmilla is probably one of the first, if not the first, I, you know, quote unquote, lesbian vampire stories casting uh, a lesbian as a predatory vampire. So he was probably the one responsible for that trope. And since he published that 18, I want to say 1864 or something, Mm -hmm. it has become like not only a trope, but there have been numerous adaptations of it, including the 2014 Canadian adaptation that we're talking about here, Carmilla, the with the uh, lesbian, the female-female content that, you know, is no longer subtext. In La Fanu's book, it was subtext. In If you, Camilla, it, if you watch not. the 1960s version with Bridget Bardot, I think that's mm-hmm, her name, mm-hmm, that is mm-hmm. not subtext, but she is hella crazy in that yeah, but, entire thing. But she was painted, you know, it, it's painted as something bad, being, a, you know, a vampire, a woman vampire, quote-unquote, preying on you know, other women. Mm -hmm. So, but having said that, I'm sure that women of the time who read it, who had quote unquote, those proclivities, if you will, um, freaking subtexted the hell out of it and wrote fanfic letters to each other. Okay. People, you know, queers, we, we managed to figure it out no matter where we are, no matter what technology we have available, we will subtext the hell out of something and that will become a damn story. So, just, so just because Le Fanu got published doesn't mean there weren't other women writing similar things. And I'm so glad we live in a world now where lesbians don't have to be the bad guy in every story. Like, there, I, I could have sworn there was a point in time in my life, if you've seen a lesbian on screen, there was a good chance that she was the bad guy. That there was something wrong with her, that it turned mm-hmm. out she was psycho. And it was just, I don't need to watch single white female again. Well, it it happens too. It still happens. It still happens. And that's why, that's why queer rep is so freaking important. And that's why bringing us back to our original point, that is why there can never be enough lesbian publishing. (laughs) Exactly. And I'm all about it. I'm all about it. I'm super excited to see what you guys do with the, with the publishing house everything no i just like well right now we're we're mostly publishing our own stuff we are a collective of authors we are all equal owners of the Mm -hmm. publishing house and we all own equal shares in it we made that decision going in and so between all of us we have quite a lot of experience in editing and design and marketing and um numbers you know because we you always need somebody who can do numbers or who's gonna like rein you in before you spend (laughs) you know so you always need one of those right so we have a bad cop and it's that's a damn good thing um so this was something that I've been planning on doing for a long ass time and it sort of finally came to fruition and we worked on it for a really long time to get this, this infrastructure set up and in place. So this wasn't something we just pulled out of our ass one day and went, oh, let's do this. It's It's been a long time coming. And since we're on the topic of 
lesbian representation, how about we talk about the first time you realized lesbians is a thing? Like the first time you saw it out in nature. <laughs> out in the so wild? To say. Yeah, out in the wild. And you were like, <laughs> yes, in the this wild? is a thing. Oh my God. I mean, I can I can go all day about how the whole idea that animals don't do homosexuality is homosexuality. Homosexuality is absolutely wrong. Like someone has told me that before. Well, you don't see animals in nature doing that, and I'm like, you are not watching the same documentaries as I am. Like it's very clear to me they don't even pay attention. Yes, you do. Actually, it's there. Yeah, it's, it's there. <laughs> Lesbians in the wild. Um, oh, well, I think I'm pretty sure I came into this world queer. Um, uh, I don't know. A lot of people I've, I've spoken with, you know, some people come to the realization later in life. That's fine. As long as you figure out who you are and what you're doing and whatever makes you happy. I, as a young kid, like before I hit the age of five, knew that I was not going to be going to Hetville. And I remember having a really angst ridden conversation with my mom. I was like four. And I said, I was just horrified because I, I assumed based on what I was seeing that I would have to marry a guy later in life. Um, for those, Oh, let me, let me clarify. I am cisgender and female and I use he, uh, she, her pronouns. Um, and my mom was like looking at me like, what are you talking about? You don't have to get married to a guy. You don't have to get married if you don't want to. I swear to God, this huge weight lifted off my chest. I was like, yes, this is awesome. I don't have to marry a dude. Not that there's anything wrong with dudes. It's just not my thing. So at that stage, I knew I was a little bit different. And it never occurred to me that this was a bad thing until I ended up in um, high school, junior high and high school. I'm really glad you had such a cool mom. I know, right? I mean, it wasn't like she was saying, oh, no, honey, you're going to be a lesbian. She was just like, well, you don't have to do it. was a very feminist message. You don't have to do, you don't have to get married to a guy if you don't want to. That's, yeah, don't worry about that. So that was a really empowering kind of message because it kind of freed me up to like explore other options, if you will. <clears throat> and, um, <laughs> hint, hint, right? wink, wink. So, and I guess... I was already subtexting, and this is something that that queers do in general is is we subtext, and that's I think the essence of gaydar, right there is you'll look at something and you'll you'll put a subtext in it to like understand the meaning beneath it because a lot of in the society that we live in it's incredibly heteronormative and incredibly hetero oppressive, and so you have to kind of like figure out who's in the know with you. And who's not? So we get very good at reading signals that I think heterosexual people don't, that they miss entirely. And I think you and I spoke about this, about how queers have to learn several different languages. It's not just the hetero-oppressive language we have to learn, but we also have to learn our own language. And within those languages, we find the subtext, and that helps us find each other, especially before um, you know, the internet it was really important that you were able to connect with like-minded people without putting yourself in danger. I, I recall during my college days, which was the, uh, the late eighties and the early nineties. See there, I just aged myself. Um, there were still cops going to gay bars and like looking to 
do whatever the fuck cops like to do at gay bars, which is basically stare at us and then arrest us for whatever trumped up things they could do. Arrest you? Like they would just just be there and be like, you look like you're mm-hmm. about to suck cock. We're going to have to arrest you. What? You would do random ID checks. That was pretty constant. And I remember this one bar I used to go to. The cops would come in, always these guys, like, and they would stand along the walls. I'm not making this up. And they would leer. They would leer at us. This was Denver, Colorado, which is not the most, you know, regressive place. But, you know, this was the early 90s. And this was one just part of the fallout that we all had to deal with. And law enforcement has a long history of harassing queers. And so that's why, to this day, I I can empathize entirely with not trusting police officers because, um, yeah, they would come to bars and roust us all the damn time. Especially with bars. Police have a long history of not being the most straight and narrow people in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, and I do not want to disparage those folks who serve in law enforcement and they serve and they do it honorably. That this was clearly not honorable, you guys. I mean, and this went on throughout my undergraduate and on into my uh, early graduate career was you could count on cops showing up at a gay bar on a weekend at some point during the night and they would just stand around and watch you. Um, and if you left, uh, they would kind of like harass you, especially if they suspected you of, of participating in quote unquote lewd acts or alcohol use, you know, they would try to nail you for like drinking and driving, even if you weren't actually driving and you were just walking around in the parking lot. So we are not that far removed from this kind of, state-sanctioned cray. And uh, I think that younger people today don't really realize how very close you are to that and how close it is to going back to that. This is why queers don't don't tell police officers about hate crimes. This is one of the reasons hate crimes are so underreported, because we're afraid of the cops. Because oftentimes the cops were um, horrendously homophobic and, and especially for trans women and trans women of color. And you don't want to engage the police for any reason whatsoever because your safety often is at risk. And again, I do not wish to disparage those officers who are damn fine officers and are doing their jobs. But the fact is that the institution of policing has had this issue for decades. Bummer of a subject. I mean, I'm not <laughs> I'm not saying let's not talk about it. I think this is exactly what we should be talking about is that, you know, just to learn from our past and to realize it doesn't take much for us to shift back into that area. Like during the whole Obama presidency, you know, I've been like hoping for better things. And then now Trump's elected. It almost feels like we've taken like a couple steps backwards. And it's like, what just happened? Trump is unraveling everything Obama did. Now, one of the things that I've been telling younger people, younger queers especially, who are freaking out, and you should freak out. This is not normal. Um, I grew up at a time when all the things that younger people take for granted now in terms of LGBTQ rights, I did not have. So I know what it is to live under those conditions. And most of the folks in my generation do. So we can be very, very useful in terms of survival and learning what tactics work and what don't 
we did a lot of street theater and street protests during the AIDS crisis of the 80s and on into the 90s because that's what worked. It got media attention and it called attention to a really, really horrific event that was happening. That There were so many thousands of, of creative, wonderful individuals who died during those years. And it shifted the entire landscape of LGBTQ relationships and made us all understand that if we wanted to change things, we had to get out there and put ourselves on the line and do it. And it was really, really scary. I'm not, I'm not going to say, oh, it was great. We had a great time protesting. Woohoo. No, it was, there were very, very fraught, scary times. And I think that was part of why the police also tried to harass us at, you know, pride events and, um, bars was because the, these were fraught times and they knew that LGBTQ people were, were coming together and networking and creating change by ourselves. It was sort of like what happened after Stone after Stonewall in 1969. There was a shift in the consciousness of LGBTQ people and the AIDS crisis provided another one of those shifts. And so a lot of us organized and really started networking and creating the kind of world that we wanted to see. I honestly did not believe when I was in my 20s and 30s that I would ever see the right to marry. That was not even in my worldview. All I knew was that I was going to work my ass off to make sure that other queers would have it after I was gone. And so that's what I did. And so imagine my fucking surprise when we actually got it. You have no idea for someone like me seeing that, what that meant, because I knew what it was to live without that and without any hope of ever getting it, but working for it anyway, because I want to make sure you guys had that right. I'm a little speechless. Um, goodness gracious, intense subjects here. But I think it is very important that we talk about these kind of things. I feel like there are so many monumental pieces of history that just kind of get swept under the rug because people feel like it's no longer relevant, even though obviously it's coming full circle now is that some, there's a shift that's happening that's changing things to be less progressive and less less progressive like i yeah, I, yeah, could, I could go i can go into super rants. shitty yeah i can go into ranch about how bad it's getting but oh and i want to i think i want to point out to you guys the the past is always present you can think that, oh, the Civil War happened in the past. Well, you know, have you, like, been watching the news? What do you think all this Confederate flag hoo-ha is all about? The Civil War is not in the past. Everything that we do now is contingent on things that happened in the past because we haven't dealt with them yet. We haven't effectively processed these and, and come to some kind of reckoning or reconciliation, whichever comes first. And I, I just want to clarify that when... Uh, um, and I, when 45 was elected, I, I have a really hard time saying his name. When 45 was, and I use that term loosely, elected, um, I, I had predicted that this would happen because I, I have a histor I'm a historian and I had been sort of watching the right wing. I spend a lot of time uh, in my graduate school days organizing votes and, and that kind of thing. And this kind of stuff that you're seeing spilling out all over the place, this is nothing new for America. What's different now is that people in power have the same views and are enabling it. 
It's not like all of a sudden everybody just went racist. All of these people were already racist. They were already there. The new administration enables it and they feel emboldened. Okay. So this is not, this is not something that just happened overnight. People need to really understand that this has been there all along and it demonstrates that we really have not done our jobs as, as educated citizens to talk to each other and to figure out how to tear this horrific system of institutionalized racism, sexism, misogyny, anti-homo, anti-queerdom. We have not yet been effective at dismantling it. We like to think we were. Obama gave us the illusion that we were, that yay, we have all these advances, blah, blah, blah. And yet we kind of forgot that all it takes is a backlash like 45 to undo everything that we did. So don't freak out that this is all new. It's not. These people were already there. What's new is we're seeing it now and we're seeing how deep it goes. So hopefully that will help you get a grip on how systemic racism is in our society and all the other isms and how much work we have to do. Why you can never, never, never sit back and think, oh, yay, we're done. You can't. And this was Change a- always takes time and effort. Yeah, this was a conversation I was having with someone. And, like, it's it's ridiculous. Like, a lot of people in my generation, unfortunately, like, when we're, we're beginning to the part where we're becoming people of opinion. We're becoming people that someone actually listened to. And a lot of them don't <laughs> want to... <laughs> I, I, you know, it's funny. People of opinion. People I like that. Pi- well, I'm just saying that because when you're, when you're younger than 25, you're just like liberal kids in college. Like people, people don't like to listen to you. And when you get over that point, you start getting houses, you start having children and somehow people of an older generation seem to listen to you more. Not talking about you. You are the coolest person. I've ever I met. listen to everybody. You know, here's the thing. Kids are smart. If have you ever spoken to like, you know, really young kids? like three, four or five-year-old kids. These, these are smart people. The thing about that is they don't have the filters yet. They're filter, they, they are filter-free, and they will tell you exactly what they think. And they have very, very good instincts. So when you see kids kind of like backing away from certain people, don't ignore that. That means those certain people, there's something freaky there. Kids are instinct and they're filter-free, and you need to like take your cues from kids. Young people, too. I mean, this is the freaking future. And so I absolutely wholeheartedly try to talk to young people all the time because there's so much creativity and so much awesomeness that young people are doing today in terms of activism and in terms of educating each other and educating the world. I can't, it's a revolutionary generation and I want to see more of it. I just really hope that they, that they remember that the world is not just internet driven. And I think that they can learn a lot of cool stuff from the elders who went through this horrific anti-gay bullshit without the internet. And we fucking did it. We managed to get the recognition that we needed without using the kinds of technology that is available today. That This tech makes it a lot faster, thank God. But there are ways to do it that don't en- engage, that you can engage all kinds of different approaches. And I really hope that young people are willing to listen to those because I, I am familiar with quite a lot of them. And I really hope that we're 
I, I say we as I'm clumping us all together. I really hope that younger people, including myself, are willing to actually put forth the effort to do things, even if it's just like changing the way you say something or changing your word. Because I've had this conversation with somebody, how you make a racial joke or you make a gay joke and it's like, ha ha, funny, funny. But you have to realize that joke might hit home with like three or four people. You're not only insulting people, but there's also that off chance that you'll have one really funny joke. And you'll go off and you'll tell that joke to maybe a hundred people. And those people might go off to turn, tell that joke to somebody else. And they're going to end up at one point telling that joke to somebody who actually is homophobic, who actually is racist. And they're going to hear that joke and they're going to see all of their friends laughing around them. And they're going to think, yes, this is okay. And they won't think to change their behavior because they think no one else is thinking it's terrible. Yeah, this and is that's, true. That's a huge thing. It's, it's a huge thing just changing the language. Like, ugh. I could go on about this, and this is not what we were supposed to be having the podcast about, but it's, <laughs> it's serious. Like, if you just change your language, and if you prep the problem, like, yes, what I said just now was horrible, and we laugh about it, but it is a serious problem. And yeah, it ruins the joke, but you can make funnier jokes, people. Oh, yes. You can make I, funnier jokes. I absolutely agree with that. Um, I just really hope that... And I, and you're right. You, you're absolutely right that older people tend to sort of discount younger people. I mean, this is a generational thing. You will see with every single generation. I have made a concerted effort to not do that because I don't know everything. Sure, I have a lot of wisdom and experience that comes from fucking up all the time and figuring it out. But that doesn't give me a handle on I am the world. I can tell you anything. No, I learn every day from younger people because I participate in a lot of fandoms and I am so grateful that I made that conscious decision to not close myself off. Of course, on a mental level, I'm probably 17, but you know, whatever. <laughs> just won't, we won't go there. I'm just like, woohoo, fandoms, let's do it. And I am grateful every day for all the young people that I interact with who like I learn from. We can all learn from each other. And I hope that this horrificness in the administration all the horrificness. There is nothing good about this, friends. And I can, you know, I can tell you stories about how bad it actually is because it is worse than what you think you see. It is far, far worse. You Just, all have to remember that there are several generations of queers out here who have been through this worse. And we know what it looks like and we know what to do. So reach out. If you're really freaking out and you don't and and it's scaring you, it should scare you. But reach out. There's strength in numbers and there's support out here. I'm looking for you too. Just, you know, make a Facebook post, Twitter post, whatever. And there will be somebody who will step up and say, Hey, I'll talk to you. What's going on? I do that constantly on Twitter. I check in with people who I think are having trouble. That's, and so. that's another amazing thing about the lesbian community, especially on Twitter, is that just there's so many people who are very, very approachable, especially like mm -hmm. like you. Like I tried to approach you at first and I was like, oh, my God, how am I going to talk to her? She's a writer. She's an editor. She has her own established podcast. She's been doing this stuff for years. And I've, I, to be honest, I was a little starstruck. So you know. here's how you do it, you guys. Here's how you do it. OK, you drop me a line and you say, hey, Andy, can I ask a question? <laughs> And I will say, sure, what's going on? <laughs> that's just something beautiful about the uh, a bulk of the lesbian community. I can't speak for everyone, but 
Just people are so approachable about so many different things. Um, mm-hmm. let's, let's move on to a lighter subject. Uh, <laughs> just, just a little bit. Um, Kids, the world sucks. I get it. I get it. So talk to me. It's all right. We'll get through it together. Well, let's go back and think of maybe not happier times, but times that really moved the world for you. Let, let's talk about when you came out as a lesbian. We are the world. (laughs) (laughs) All right, you guys. So this is a funny story. And and when I tell it, people just look at me. They're like, there's no way that happened that way. But it it did. Um, Some people have a coming out like this. Other people, it takes a while. It kind of builds up. For me, I, I felt like there was something... I needed to figure out I was in college. I was a a sophomore in college undergraduate. I was at the university of Colorado at Boulder and um, my family decided that we bless them, that we were going to take a a family vacation. Like one of the last ones we did, because, you know, as you age out of that eventually, and then you do your own family vacations after you, you know, establish your own family. And, it was sort of a tradition. What my family used to do was rather than do Christmas, we would um, like donate to a bunch of like needy people in the area. And then we would go on a vacation together. We would usually go to California because woohoo, West Coast. Yay. So that's what we decided to do. So I'm like a sophomore in college and, and my sister is, is uh, uh, she was a, um, I think she was 15, 14 at the time. And <laughs> We packed up this ridiculous monstrosity of a car. It was a 1969 shit brown Pontiac Catalina station wagon. I mean, this thing was probably as long as a semi when you parked it. It was so atrocious. And my sister and I nicknamed it the tuna boat. Oh, my God. Because it was like you were in this boat going down the road. And we towed behind it like a 1960s era camper trailer, you guys, with our dogs in the back of the tuna boat. I can't tell you how completely Holiday Road, you know, or Vacation with Chevy Chase. If you have not seen that movie, watch that movie. That will tell you exactly how this vacation went. How did you guys even make it? Like towing included? How did you even make it? Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, you know, off we went. Um we usually break down, we have done this trip before, and we usually break down in Flagstaff, Arizona. This was no exception. <laughs> so, so, you know, we like stayed in Flagstaff, Arizona, which is northern Arizona. So it's cold in the wintertime. And I remember we were hungry, so we went to this Chinese restaurant. We were the only people in this whole restaurant. And this woman came in um, with a young girl who looked to be about 11 or 12. And they were the only other two people in the whole restaurant. So my dad's like, Hey, come and join us. And this is, so this is how we are as a family. And so she was like, okay. So she came over with her, it turned out to be her niece. And this woman was a truck driver. And I thought that was the most amazing thing ever was that this woman is driving trucks cross country and her niece would come with her because she was on um, school break. So her niece would come with her like for some of her runs throughout the the West. They were on wow. their way. I think they were to Idaho or someplace. I don't know. Talk about cool and, parents. Oh, my God. This woman, though, she was amazing. And she was telling us stories about, you know, you know the way the truck seat worked. Because my dad at the time was having back trouble. So he wanted to know how this woman <laughs> dealt with, 
you know, the back issues as you, because when you drive long distance in these rigs, you know, and she was talking about her hydraulic seat and it was like, oh, this sounds so cool. And then she was like, my mom wanted to know, well, about safety, because obviously a woman on the road alone, you guys, yeah. And she's like, the truck driver goes, I can't remember her name. She said, oh, yeah, I, I pack a 45 Jesus. under my seat. Under my seat, and I'm like, oh, I had a crush. I crushed out right there on this woman truck driver. It was so cool. Oh my god. So anyway, we that was we were the only people in this whole restaurant the whole time. So anyway, you know, we said our goodbyes. It was really cool. You know, we meet people quite a quite a lot like that. I I do that quite a bit on my road trip. So I always end up meeting really interesting people. So then we continued on to California. We had to go to, it was a pilgrimage. We were going to go to Disneyland because my sister had, last time we were at Disneyland was when she was like two and didn't remember it. So this was for her, you know. And the whole time I'm thinking there is something on this trip that I have to do. I didn't know what it was, but it was like this weird feeling that something really important was going to happen to me. So we're going up the coast and we go to San Francisco and we, with our fucked up rig and we park. <laughs> I don't know where my parents, how they found this place. It was, it was a KOA campground along the piers of San Francisco. And at the time, USS enterprise a, a nuclear uh, aircraft carrier was still commissioned. And that was where it was docked. It was right there. So there was armed, there were armed military guards at the entrance to this campground. It was a World War II era barracks and the showers and everything were World War II era, but they were still working. Hey. And so that's where we were camping in this parking lot in the shadow of the USS Enterprise. I don't know. There's something poetic about that. And so we started, you know, we detached the camper and we're like cruising around San Francisco. And this was our last stop before we headed back to Colorado. And I'm thinking, oh, maybe, maybe I don't, maybe nothing's going to happen, you know, Not, you know, whatever. And, um, our giant ass tuna boat breaks down in Chinatown and we found this Chinese guy up the street at a shell station. His name was wing W I N G just like it, like it, you thought it was. And, um, he came and towed us up to his, his station. And you know how the Hills are in San Francisco. Even if you haven't been, you've seen pictures. Well, they really truly are like that. So we're trudging up the hill to go to Wings Wings shop, and and he's like checking out the car, and he didn't have the parts, but he was going to go to a junkyard, and then he was literally going to literally rebuild a part for us. I miss cool the days. Guy. I miss the days when people were really like they when they have a craft, they know their craft so exactly, well. and um. You know, for like years after that incident, my mom would send him a Christmas card every year thanking him for rebuilding our starter in the in the 69 Catalina. So here we are. We don't have a car. And there, this was way before the days of Uber, friends. You know, you just had to call a cab. And we ended up uh, near Ghirardelli Square, which was where at the time, this is like the late 80s, where the Hard Rock Cafe was. And the Hard Rock Cafe was a thing back then. It was like new on the scene and everybody was like, oh my God, the Hard Rock Cafe, it's so awesome. Wow. And, you know, MTV was relatively new. It had launched in 81. And, you know, music was very, very important to me because that was one of the things that helped me cope when I was trying to figure out 
why the hell I didn't like dudes when I that way when I was in high school. So music was an escape, and I had a lot of different pen pals. Back in the day, friends, a pen pal literally meant you wrote, you hand wrote your letters and snail mailed them to your your pals overseas. And then we, I had a lot of music loving folks and we exchanged mixtapes. That was our thing. So I was always up on the latest music from like Germany, the UK, Australia, and whatever was going on, because that was just like my thing back in the day. So here we are at the hard rock cafe and it's packed. Oh my God, it is so busy. There's this huge line and we get in and we get a table. And I, if you've seen the video for sweet dreams are made of this by the Eurythmics, there's a cow in that video. And that cow was on the ceiling. Its feet had been, it was a big plastic cow, you know, like its feet had been glued to the ceiling. So that was right above our table. And I looked up at this cow and I was like, Oh my God, your rhythmics. And I'm like, wow. And there's so much memorabilia all over the walls. And like, this is the jacket Madonna wore in the lucky star video. You know, it was just like, Oh my God, it was this shizzle. So we get our table and we sit down and I'm just kind of like hanging out. And I love, it's the music. I I was so enamored with the music. They're playing this great music. There was memorabilia everywhere. I was just like, oh my God, it was in heaven. And this really super cute bus girl walks up to the table and she looks right at me. She totally ignores everybody else at the table. And she looks right at me and she goes, can I help you with something? And then starts your theme song music. I was like, what? And I, what the hell? I can even tell you guys exactly what I ordered that day. I had an iced tea and the watermelon baby back ribs. But anyway, not that I, you know, thought this was a momentous day or anything. And she, you know, I like bad, 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 ordered my iced tea. And then I, I got up because something incredible was happening. Something in was shifting and I had to like go somewhere and like deal with this. So I went to the bathroom, you know, I, I, cause otherwise I'd have to go outside and my parents would have been like, what's going on. And so I went to the bathroom and there was nobody in the bathroom and this restaurant was packed and I'm, and it's a women's room. I'm, there's always like some woman in there. No, it was just me. And I stared into the mirror and I went, holy shit, I'm gay. And it was like the clouds opened and there was a hallelujah chorus and my entire world shifted 180 degrees. Everything clicked into place in that one instant. I walked into that restaurant, not sure what the fuck. I walked out a full-fledged bouncing baby lesbian. And I went back to the table and sat down and I could not tell anybody because at that time, and still, you know, there's still kids kicked out on the street for, for being queer, kicked out of their homes. But in the 80s, it was even worse. And I don't know, maybe it's relative. Maybe it's always been bad. But anyway, um, don't worry, that story has a happy ending, friends. My, my parents are very accepting, so it's okay. But at the time, you know, I, I didn't know what to do with this momentous thing that had just happened. All I knew was that this bus girl kept coming around, and it, after I came out of that bathroom, I was now able to interact with her in a way that was more appropriate to the whole lesbian thing than I was before I went into that bathroom. So Did the you hard remember? Ride- I think that's what everyone wants to hear right now. I did not, and if I had... I would have sent her a damn thank you card. <laughs> she was the one. She was the one who made my whole journey out there click into place. She was the catalyst. And I wish to God I had known who that was. I keep hoping I'm going to meet somebody who's like, yeah, I worked at the Hard Rock Cafe back in the 80s. And I'm going to be like, the one in San Francisco? Oh, oh my, my God. God. Are you waiting on a table December 19th? 
<laughs> oh my god, that is that is a love story that needs to be written right there. I will ship that to the end of time. <laughs> Just waiting for it. And it's I, I, <laughs> I didn't have like I I mean I had been kind of struggling with the idea that I like girls. I did. But you know, usually it's a process, right? You kind of have a few relationships, a few makeout sessions. Not that I'm saying that happened, but whatever. You have some, ma <laughs> you have a few relationships and things, and you're still not sure what's going on. It was an instantaneous clicking of the cosmic gears right into place. I went into that bathroom, one person, I came out an entirely different person with a whole different, like, it was like I went in in black and white and came out in Technicolor. Everything made sense. Everything made sense in that one instant. That is amazing. And I almost feel like that would be the, like, I feel like if you actually did send her a thank you card, that would be something she would cherish for a long time. Cause think of the compliment you would get from someone just being like, Hey, you're the person that made me realize I was gay. Like, I know. Right. She'd be are. like, on the other hand, she probably didn't even uh, from her perspective, she was probably just doing her job. Like, you know, there was nothing cosmic about it for her, except I think she may have thought I was cute because she kept coming back to the table quite a bit and checking on me. I, so. will, I will keep that in my brain. I will fangirl that in the back of my head. <laughs> I ship it. Andy and the bus girl. Andy bus. <laughs> <laughs> I want to shout that out to your Twitter one day when you're feeling really bad. Just like Andy bus. Hashtag Andy bus. I, I, I will die laughing because that's precisely what happened. And it, you know, and, and I'm not going to say everything was like, puppies and dancing unicorns and glitter after that it wasn't there's there were a few years of really really difficult times with my family um and and trying to figure out what it did mean and understanding you know I came out during the AIDS crisis so there was a huge backlash against LGBTQ people as there always is but I came out at a time of a lot of political upheaval and so I had to learn pretty quickly like what that meant and how I fit in and what I could do. And I had a lot of gay male friends and some of them I never saw again because AIDS took them and others. I like, I still have one guy who's a really a pretty a friend of mine still. And I used to be like, so worried about him all the time. I would constantly like check in with him on if he was practicing safe sex you know, please take care of yourself. If anything happens, let me know. I've got your back. Call me at any time and I will come and get you. I don't care what situation it is. And back in the day, friends, we didn't have cell phones. So it was, you know, we had to like have systems where we could contact each other if there was an emergency. So I am so glad he made it through those years. You have no idea how glad I am about that because so many people died. So many men. We lost so many men to this horrific disease and, and, no, and nobody I, talks about that now like I haven't seen in one textbook while I was learning history it's like textbooks for some reason they'll stop like if you're in history in a class like even in college it won't talk about the AIDS crisis unless you're like in a health class and even then it will go mm -hmm. more into what the disease does it doesn't say who would affect it and how the government essentially failed to do anything about it Oh my God, it was such a huge fail, such a huge fail. And this was why groups like Act Up and Queer Nation, and I was active in, uh, in Queer Nation, that's why they took to the streets was because nobody was listening. And those demonstrations changed the world. They changed the course of how this country dealt 
with the AIDS crisis and continues to deal with the AIDS crisis. I mean, there were like people, and it's a horrible way to die. AIDS is a horrible way to die. It, it breaks down your immune system and it makes you so subject to all kinds of, of terrible things. And you, you literally waste away your body. Just it's awful. And, and at the time there were so many gay men who were dealing with losing their partners because we didn't have marriage. So they were partners. So they had no legal rights to even visit them in the hospital. You had to depend on the kindness of a nurse or a doctor to let your gay ass in to go visit your dying partner and to take care of him. And the nursing staff, some, and God bless them. Some of them were really freaking good, but a lot of them were homophobic. And so it was the partners who went in there and did all the goddamn medical care for these men dying in hospitals. And nobody remembers that. It was literally, it was so horrible throughout those years. And it was, it just, it informed those of us who came of age in the eighties, who came out during that. It is a, it is a major part of our historical context as queers. And also during that age, and this is an important shift too, because so many men took ill and were, and were devastated. Les, the lesbian community came together and took leadership positions in, in organizations that had traditionally had mostly men at their helms. This was when we really saw the gay male community and the lesbian community really come together as a unified community and start really helping each other. I can't tell you, there are so many lesbians who stepped up and nursed their gay brothers throughout this horrible, horrible, devastating time. And they don't get the credit that they deserve. There are a lot of gay guys who do, who recognize it, and they will do these amazing blogs um, you know, every year annually to recognize the women that were involved in helping their gay brothers because their families rejected them. They had no families of birth. It was the family we created that, that got us all through that for the most part. It was, it was horrible. I can't even stress to, to the young folks how god-awful horrible those times were, and they were. Which is why <laughs> a lot of us from that era have a really gallows sense of humor <laughs> because we made it through, you know, we made it through. I feel like this is also very important to talk about the the unity that there was in the LBGT community. And I feel like a lot of that unity isn't there anymore. Like it seems like we're all nitpicking, nitpicking at each other. And just basically trying to solidify oh, what it is it means to be in this group or what it means to be in that group. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it shouldn't even matter. We should just be like, oh, you're not only straight. That's fine. Come on on. Come on over here. We will, we will be your family. We will take you in. And for whatever reason, a lot of it's just a lot of bickering back and forth now. I, you know, that that's, I, I'm not, it, we had the same thing. It's not. It's nothing new when you've got political and social movements. Um, progressive movements, especially, tend to to have a lot of that because, and thank God we do, because a lot more creativity comes out of the coalitions that we build. We don't. We're not in lockstep all the time, and I, I don't think it's healthy to be in lockstep. I think it's important to question each other and to question approaches, and also to. Critique. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. When it becomes a problem is when it hamstrings a movement. And so far, I see the usual 
crazy that was happening in the in the AIDS crisis. But there was a lot of bickering then too. There was a lot of infighting, but that's that's just part of a dynamic, creative way of moving in different directions until you find out what's going to work best. And I wanted to, to mention here too, back in 1992, there were two really, really pivotal, important political battles that occurred on the LGBTQ scene. One of those was Amendment 2 in Colorado, and I was heavily involved in that one. And And what that was was an amendment to the state constitution that basically made it legal to discriminate in housing and service any kind of like public service to LGBTQ people. It was later found, I believe in 94, 95, it was found unconstitutional by the United States Supreme Court. But Amendment 2 passed. And at the time I was I was moving to New Mexico to start my graduate career. Um, and I, I maintained my, my uh, residency in Colorado until that election because I, I wanted to vote, but I had a very, very bad feeling that it was going to pass. And it did pass. It was immediately challenged. And it made me feel, and this is like a religious liberty law on steroids was what Amendment 2 was. Or if you're paying attention, it was almost as bad as the Mississippi religious liberty law that just went into effect. I was about to say, it sounds right. just like history. It's almost that itself. bad. But there was no mention of religion in the amendment. It was just, these people are, it was like homosexual, bisexual, um, who else? Uh, I think transgender as well were singled out. They were literally, those terms were singled out, homosexual, bisexual, um, gay, I think. It was just like the worst. And it, what it meant was you could literally be turned away from renting anything, from, from um, the hospital, anything was what this amendment was saying. And it was, of course, pushed by uh, a right-wing Christian group out of Colorado Springs at the time. But there was a far worse one, and people don't remember this battle, there was a far worse one in Oregon. That was ballot measure nine. And it was on the 92 ballot, the same as, as uh, amendment two was in Colorado. Ballot measure nine also pushed by a religious right organization. And there's a documentary out there that you can purchase call. I think it's called ballot measure nine. Watch that video. I absolutely implore you to watch that video because it, it shows you how the LGBTQ, the queer community understood the threat of what was happening. And what they did was they banded together with other marginalized communities to create a unified coalition and to vote that fucker down. Now, it wasn't the end of the battle. Ballot nine, measure nine did not pass, but there, it was horrific what happened during the campaigning of that of that ballot. There were people who were brutalized. There was a house that burned down and two people died. And we're pretty sure it's re, it was related to ballot measure nine violence. These were two queer people who were killed. What is important about that is the intersectionality in 1992 that developed because the queer community knew they could not do this alone. So they reached out to other marginalized communities. But what that means, friends, those people have your back for that ballot measure. You better fucking have their backs for others. So like this whole shit we see going down with DACA right now and, you know, the, the dreamers being cut off and, and the Muslim communities being just completely horrifically marginalized by the administration. You cannot just say, oh, you know, they're Muslims. We're not even going to bother. We owe these people. They go to bat for us. We go to bat for them. 
That's how it freaking works. And even if they don't go to bat for you all the time, go to bat for them anyway, because it is the right thing to do. Because the administration will come for them first. And if nobody stands up, they're just going to keep on taking us out one by one by one. We cannot let that happen. And people in Oregon realized that in 92. And I learned a very important lesson from that battle, watching what happened in Oregon versus what happened in Colorado. Had we done in Colorado what they had done in Oregon, Amendment 2 would not have passed at all. So stick together. We have to stick together, all of us, no matter your marginalized community. And allies, thank you. If you're not in a marginalized community, you're doing the right thing by sticking up for us. I'm so sick of having to fight religious people over stuff and we're not going to get into that because i've met many queer people who are religious and i just don't understand how they could have the back of a religion when it doesn't have your back and granted religion subjective you can't you can't have a single group of people speak for the entire religion that's just not how it works I, i think that a lot of those folks are are on a spiritual journey and they're just using the infrastructure of a particular religion to help them achieve a spiritual journey. There's a, a new book out, and I, I implore everyone, buddy, to read this because it will tell you a whole lot about this. Um, what's the name of it? I think it's called Refocusing My Family. And it's, it's by a lesbian who, whose family, whose father is a top official in, in Focus on the Family, which is a hard, hard-line Christian right group based in Colorado Springs. And it's her journey to understanding who she is within the context of this Christian hard right evangelical family and understanding that she's a lesbian. Um, For her family and her, the story is not a happy one. She's estranged right now from her family for they, they absolutely refuse to acknowledge her, but she found a welcoming uh, church community and she met her wife and her life is as it should be in that regard. But she also, mentions in this book her journey as being raised in a Christian evangelical family and still being a Christian after all of this horrible has happened. And I think it's a really beautiful description of a journey. Um, I don't think Christianity is inherently evil. I think that some of the people who use it and weaponize it those people are the problems. Religion itself isn't necessarily the problem. It's how it is used that is the problem. I, because I don't wish to speak ill of anyone's spiritual journeys, whatever they may be. I have to agree with you. And, and well, let's not make yeah. any mistake. It is being super uber weaponized in this administration. Um, but I don't consider what's happening... Christianity that's being weaponized. Well, it is being weaponized. I consider what's happening right now is theocracy. And that is a corruption of the of the original tenets of Christianity. Oh, I believe it. But let's that should be a podcast for another Yeah, day. so that's a whole other podcast. But anyway, I don't know that, I don't know enough about politics to have this conversation, though I'm pretty well, sure you can do the whole important. thing by yourself. It's very important that all of all of the young people out there this is why civic engagement is so important. We all sat on our laurels during the Obama years thinking, woohoo, this is great. Guess what? Engage, 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 engage. Run for office on a local level because politics is always local. And the right wing has been, has been doing this for 
decades, my friends. They have one of the best, most well-organized infrastructures you will ever see. Progressives can take a lesson from that. We kind of were like, yay, the world skews progressive. Everything's going to be great. And if only that were the case, this is a backlash. So we have to always be vigilant and you have to always engage. Democracy is not going to take care of itself. Democracy comes from you, the people. And the more you engage and the more you learn, the better off we will all be, as well as the future generations. Boom. That's my mic drop. <laughs> that was a mic drop. I was literally about to be like, how do I, how do I even add anything to that? And I think I won't. <laughs> you run for like a county office, a city office. You guys, seriously, it's not that hard to do. And there are organizations that can help you organize and develop messaging and strategies. And all of you young people are so good at it already, at messaging and strategizing and, and those sound bites that like, boom, 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 get your point out. You guys already have this nailed. You already have the skills. You just need to learn how to focus them into a political campaign. And I so want young progressives and young queers especially to run for office because once we start taking things back on the local level, that's going to change things on, on the federal. Forget right now about the federal. Fuck that shit. Don't even just ignore it. It's well, don't ignore it, but just that's beyond your, that's beyond. Uh, we can't fix it. Work on the local level, turn the States, make the States progressive. That's what we need to be doing. Once we have more progressive states, that then helps us influence on the federal level. And the right has been doing Most definitely. Boom. I think we have so much content. I don't even know how I'm going to end up wrapping I'm this gonna up. I'm going to tell people, though, you know, yeah, I'm an old lady. Well, I'm not as old as some. Whatever. Um, if any of you have questions about writing, editing, whatever, just hit me up on Twitter. I'm under the, the cryptic Andy Marquette on Twitter and Facebook and Tumblr. And you can also hit up our website, dirtroadbooks.com. And you can hit up my website, andymarquette.com. And, oh my God, you can find me at Women in Words, womenwords.org. That's, that's our crazy blog that we started about 10 years ago, me and my colleague, Joe Bell. So you can find me any number of ways. And if you have any questions, comments, whatever, you just want to talk, oh, hey, please drop me a line. I'm my... That door's always open. And you are just so awesome, Andy. Uh, thank you so much for being on the air with us today, Andy. We've learned so much from you. I hope to learn more from you in the future. But as of right now, I know you're exhausted, and you'll probably be yeah, really I, happy to like, <laughs> rest No, it was so great talking to you. And um, anytime you want me on again, we can, we can chit-chat again and tell stories and just chit-chat. It would be awesome. You're going to regret saying that because I'm going to bug you like once a month. It's yes, gonna, It's going to be the oh Andy God. special. Once yeah, a month, and Andy we can special. talk about like various topics. Just be like, Andy, tell me about X, Y, Z, and I'll be like, okay, let's see what we can do here. I'm gonna have you start talking about Xena and the impact it had on the lesbian community. Oh my god, yes, we could totally talk about that. <laughs> Holy shit! All right, <laughs> all right. Well, we have a plan for the next podcast that she does with us, and I hope to see you guys again soon. <laughs>